This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. Hurricane Harvey dominated headlines last week. Right now, it's all about Irma. The storm has already left unprecedented destruction in Puerto Rico and other islands in the Caribbean. But with Harvey, a lot of the media coverage was reactive. The storm's magnitude surprised most of Houston and the world. Journalists didn't have much time to prepare. With Irma, advance warning has allowed reporters to be more proactive in their approach. Hurricanes can be devastating on a physical and emotional level, but unlike other natural catastrophes like tsunamis or earthquakes, people can prepare for them. And that includes journalists. To discuss that preparation, CJR's Meg Dalton spoke with John Pope, an award-winning journalist known for his coverage of Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath. Good morning. Hey, is this John Pope? It certainly is. Hey, John, it's Meg Dalton calling from CJR. Howdy. How are you doing? I am as just as frisky as a speckled pup on Christmas morning. I have never heard that expression before. <laughs> My name is John Pope. I'm a contributing writer for NOLA.com, the Times-Picayune, based in New Orleans. I must admit that there is a bit of relief because on a Friday morning, it does not seem that Hurricane Irma will be headed our way. We go through this anxiety every summer over wondering whether we'll be hammered in August and September. Yeah, and a few years ago, you wrote a really great guide about covering hurricanes for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. And as you mentioned in the guide, you were writing from New Orleans, a place where hurricanes are both an accepted and traumatic part of everyday life. So what are some of the biggest lessons you can share from your coverage of Hurricane Katrina as communities brace for Irma? How much time you got? I mean, this is just, it's a, it's a list. It just never, it never stops growing. But Here's the deal. To start with, there are no good natural disasters. But unlike the earthquakes, such as this morning's in Mexico City and tornadoes, you can prepare for a hurricane. If you can see one's coming your way, prepare. That's the most important thing. Start gathering email addresses, cell phone numbers, of, and other contact information for valuable, for important sources. As my wife used to say, a disaster is no time to make new friends. So establish those contacts early on. Gas up your car. Get batteries. Withdraw some money from the ATM because you probably will not be able to use credit cards where you're going if you're going into a disaster. And um, pack stuff you'll need like Kleenex and handy wipes and a couple of days' change of clothing. And you just it's, it's all about preparation. And then you just sort of start from there, and then you just watch the storm and see what happens. And what about kind of preparing for the emotional um, aspects of, the, of covering a hurricane? Um, I punched the daylights out of a heavy bag at my gym when, it, when Hurricane Irma was still wavering on which way to go, and the same with Harvey earlier. There's a lot of stress that we all have, especially those of us who own houses in this community. Just exercise like crazy. It's healthy, it's good for you, and it just it can dispel some of the anxiety. And stay with friends. Don't sit home and brood because the situation can get so much gloomier if you're by yourself. So you were just talking about both logistical and kind of emotional prep going into covering a hurricane. 
But in the piece, you kind of broke it down into three categories, before, during, and after. So what would you recommend journalists do during the storm? Hunker down. Be safe. Don't be stupid. And we have all seen pictures of generations of reporters who are clinging to palm trees or light poles as they're being battered by winds and rain to report what's going on. Don't do that. It's foolhardy. If you go into someplace safe, if you're in a news organization, set up a safe room with no windows and rig it up with lights, fans, computers, and generators so that you can keep working when the power dies. And during the storm, blog whenever possible. We learned during Katrina the beauty of blogs because you don't have to have a complete beautifully structured narrative. You just get out the information as fast as you can get it because that's what folks want. And just blog like crazy. And if you can swing it, stay with officials at a disaster center because they'll be getting the news first. And then once the storm abates, you might be able to get out with them in a vehicle that is high above whatever floodwater might be there and see what's going on. Can you explain how journalists can balance their safety with the need to tell this right story? It's tough. I think you, you should not be out in the teeth of a storm. There is file footage somewhere. There, there, there's footage available to tell the story, and you don't want to be out there in it because no one with any sense will be. Once there have been, there were great pictures, there were great stories out of Harvey. Uh, there was one reporter I remember who was on an overpass, and she saw a man trapped in his car with rising water. Well, of course she intervened. She's a human being with a conscience, and but she wasn't in the teeth of the gale. This was after the storm had the worst of the storm had moved on, and so if you see something like that, of course you intervene. In that guide for the Dart Center, you also talked about kind of the after the storm. What should journalists be doing after Irma strikes? Contact everyone on your to-call list to see how things are faring. I was writing about medicine and health when Katrina hit, so I had a long list of folks, and that was important because there was all this junk in the waters in New Orleans. I mean, there was this cliche that arose, toxic gumbo. Well, I mean, people were talking about malaria and yellow fever. It wasn't there. But people want to know what's around them, what dangers happen. What about cholera? What about diarrhea? Get health tips about water safety and talk to um, power company experts to see when the power will come back and then get to public health experts and then ask questions If you can't understand what people are saying in medical ease or government ease, your readers won't be able to understand either. So you have to ask them to break it down. And then you want to interview people who have been through it, but you have to, this is the toughest part, I think, because you walk this tightrope. On one hand, you do not want to be so aloof and detached that you'll just turn people off immediately. But on the other hand, you don't want to be so empathetic that you'll be weeping along with them. You just have to be empathetic without just going overboard. I, several of my colleagues lived in FEMA trailers 
for months after the storm while their houses were being rebuilt. And one of them told me that that gave him a tremendous advantage in interviewing people because he could he knew what they were going through and he knew how to phrase his questions. He knew what to ask. And then keep in touch with public health. That's, again, it was my beat, but it's vital because people want to know what's safe and what isn't. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about how journalists can, you know, better anticipate disasters. It's it's tough. And you just, you keep on learning. As Sam the pianist said in Casablanca, the fundamental things apply. And that's the way it works here. Meg and I are now joined by one of the newest members of our CJR team, Karen Cahoe. So first, Karen, welcome. Thank you. You've been following Irma as it approaches Florida, talking with some people in newsrooms down there. We just heard from John Pope about some of the preparations that journalists should be taking as they prepare to cover a storm of Irma's magnitude. What have you been hearing from reporters' newsrooms down in Florida? There is really no time for them to be fatigued after covering what happened in Harvey and Houston. For a newsroom like Univision, in the midst of covering DACA and the fires and even the Pope's visit in Colombia, they really don't have any time to sort of take a breather because so much of their coverage area and their audience is really going to be affected by uh, Hurricane Irma and are currently affected by Hurricane Irma, as well as the other two hurricanes that are currently in the Atlantic. And so it's really interesting for them in terms of the logistics, in terms of their preparation, and that it's really coming home for them after some of their team members have literally just gotten off the plane yesterday morning from Houston. And I would imagine that this morning's earthquake in Mexico is also straining their resources. They told me last night that they already had um, a news crew that had moved actually from Mexico City to Veracruz. And so it's really interesting in terms of their ability to cover such a huge geographical area and, you know, in multiple locations that are being affected by these natural disasters, what is going to make it to their national broadcast? Because you only have so much airtime, you have your local broadcast, and these are important issues. But in terms of maximum impact and who's being most affected, that's going to be an ongoing problem throughout the weekend for them. Yeah. And throughout the weekend, we should mention that The big newspapers that have paywalls down in Florida, Orlando Sentinel, Miami Herald, have dropped those paywalls so people can have access to the information they need to hopefully stay safe. And obviously, for those of you listening in regions that are affected by any of these natural disasters, we wish you the best and hope for your safety. Turning away from natural disasters, we're going to talk about a technological disaster. We'll get later to investigations into the connections between members of the Trump orbit and Russian officials, but first, a tangential aspect of that story. Earlier this week, the Washington Post reported that Facebook had sold $100,000 worth of advertising to a Russian firm tied to a pro-Kremlin propaganda network. There's been some great follow-up reporting on the use of bots and fake accounts, but I want to focus on Facebook. The company said that it's constantly working to address concerns about fake news, automated accounts, efforts by foreign agents to influence elections in the U.S. and elsewhere. At this point, however, I find it really hard to trust Mark Zuckerberg or the people speaking on his behalf. I completely agree. And the first thought I had um, upon hearing this news was like, hey, Facebook, why don't you just show us the ads? 
I mean, the other thing is we can't trust them to show us the ads because we've seen in the past repeatedly that they've lied to us regarding the metrics of their videos, uh, regarding the efficacy and the way that they target in their advertising materials versus what they actually tell the press. There's two totally different messages. And so how can we trust them to be transparent in the way that they propose that they are going to be now? Yeah, my favorite bit to come out of reporting this week was that Facebook's platform claimed they could reach 41 million United States citizens between the ages of 18 to 24. According to the U.S. Census, there are 31 million Americans in that bracket. So we've seen this over the course of, it's almost been exactly a year since Facebook first admitted they were over-calculating the uh, amount of video that people were watching, video advertising, and that was followed throughout last fall by a series of grudging admissions that, hey, we screwed up this metric. Hey, we messed up with this measurement. I don't know why anyone, publisher or just citizen, would trust Facebook and take what they say at face value at this point. At the end of the day, as a business, they have no incentive to stop juicing their numbers because they're all about sales and they're all about convincing companies that they are the number one place to advertise for. And when you're talking about public accountability, whether it be for the media, whether it be for their interactions with foreign organizations that affect democracy, there's a huge question that they will really have to face more and more pressure about answering to. And part of the question they have to answer is, how do they define themselves, right? In the past, they've made it clear, we're a tech company, we're not a publisher. And that seems to have softened somewhat in the last few months as the company acknowledges some level of editorial responsibility for the content it hosts. But how it's changing, what those changes will look like, it's still largely unknown. Facebook recently hired former New York Times public editor and former CJR editor and publisher Liz Spade to help manage the company's efforts about giving users more, quote, transparency into how it makes decisions. She's got a lot of work cut out for her in the months ahead. Also facing a mountain of work this fall, the president. September is traditionally signaled a return to normalcy in Washington after an August lull. We didn't quite get that down period this summer, but Congress is back in session now, and the Trump administration has four months left in the year to address a huge list of issues. Trump has dominated news cycles like no president before him, and we don't expect that to change, but we wanted to briefly look at what's ahead for him, the reporters who cover the president, and those of us following from afar. So, Meg, what is one of these storylines out of Washington that you're expecting to see a lot of coverage about and that you're interested in following going forward? Well, in in the short term, uh, it's going to be all about disaster relief, um, not only for Harvey, but Irma and all the other storms that are kind of whirling towards the U.S. And the narrative kind of surrounding that right now is the focus on Trump's willingness to collaborate with Democratic leaders, specifically Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, uh, which is something that we really haven't seen before. Um, is what the media is referring to as a bipartisan effort to address major issues in the United States. Yeah, and that brings up a storyline I think I'm interested in following, which is how closely Republican leaders are going to stick by the president if he shows this willingness to praise Nancy and Chuck. They now all appear to be on the same team, at least for this one issue. I'm sure that won't last, but if he is giving in to Democrats and if Republicans are as angry as reports out of Washington seem to indicate, that's going to be an interesting storyline going forward. Karen, what are you paying attention to? I'm definitely looking at immigration, not only with DACA, but if there is a wider immigration bill as proposed in the RAISE Act, that's going to affect their hiring and 
ability to retain and attract new talent from around the world. And that's going to be a really big issue that Republicans are going to care about because there's a huge amount of money and there's a huge amount of power in those companies. And if that affects their business, they're going to hear about it. And so that's something that is not just going to be a political media story, but a business press story also? Unavoidably so. I mean, talent and retention and also about recruiting, those are huge parts of the business press. Everybody wants the edge when it comes to competition right now in this kind of environment. When you hear big companies like Amazon making huge moves, everybody wants to know what's the best way to operate in this day and age. And if this makes it difficult to compete against companies like Samsung or uh, Toshiba in foreign countries, then it's going to be a huge issue going forward. Yeah. And there's also legislative issues like tax reform, which has been promised. And we'll see if anything comes of that. Again, there's, I think, 45 legislative days left in the calendar year. So Congress has a lot on its plate and Trump is facing a ton of issues, also asking for a lot. Then hanging over all of this is Russia. We're going to be hearing a lot about the multiple investigations into Russian attempts to influence the election. There's, of course, the Mueller investigation, but there's also Senate intelligence, Senate judiciary, House intelligence. And those investigations going on, hearings happening, mean, especially in this Washington environment, there's going to be leaks. I expect that we're going to continue to see the heavyweight battle between the New York Times and Washington Post with scoops about an incremental story that's being pushed forward, drip, drip, drip. Does it lead anywhere conclusive? I guess that's the question we've been asking for, you know, almost since day one of this administration. But Russia, I expect, will continue to dominate. Whether that's in the background as more immediate issues like hurricane relief are playing out, I expect we'll be hearing about it throughout the fall and beyond that. It's going to be overwhelming. It will continue to be overwhelming. I, I'm, I'm already overwhelmed. I've spent the last year, it feels like, being overwhelmed. That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. Thanks especially to John Pope for calling in from New Orleans. Meg, Karen, thanks for being here with me. Thank you. Thank you. As always, please go check out all the great content on CJR.org. We're just coming off a record month of traffic. So we thank you for all the reading and all of the support. We'll see you next week.